There is no subject more profound or awesome than the subject of God. And uh, what should be our attitude as we approach such a study? No attitude but humility, I'm sure, is appropriate in a study like this, both in our attitude to God and in our attitude to one another. Micah 6, 8, we are told, What doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? <clears throat> and we are told in Philippians 2, 3, In lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. I pray that nothing that I say tonight will give the impression that others might not understand the matter better than I do. All I can do is to present the facts as I see them and leave the rest to your judgment guided by the Holy Spirit. The first thing that we need to realise is that God is infinitely beyond our understanding. As you would know, there are many scriptures which plainly teach that we cannot completely understand God. We are finite. He is infinite. We must humbly sit in the seat of the learner. Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite, it says in Psalm 147 verse 5. Because God's ways are so infinitely beyond us, our only safety is to remain within the boundaries of revealed knowledge and not speculate about things that have not been revealed. We are told in Deuteronomy, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever. How thankful we should be, as I said before, that God has seen fit to reveal anything about himself. It is important also when considering matters such as these to judge everything on the weight of evidence. Ellen White put it this way, God does not propose to remove all occasions for unbelief. He gives evidence which must be carefully investigated with a humble mind and a teachable spirit and all should decide from what? The weight of evidence. We must be patient with one another and patient with God for there will be some pieces of evidence for each side of a particular question. We have to make the effort to weigh the evidence and have the courage to make a decision based on the weight of that evidence. I do not have time to give you all the evidence tonight or during this weekend. I've tried to do that in my book which many of you no doubt have. Since writing my book on the Trinity, I've been led to write a book on Islam. I've called it Islam or Christianity, Where Lies the Truth. In preparing this book, it has dawned on me that the main argument that Muslims have against Christianity is that they believe in one God and we believe in three. They are wrong, of course. Trinitarians believe in one God, one God in three persons. That is what the word Trinity means. It is short for tri-unity. 
So I thought that before talking about Christ or the Holy Spirit, I should begin by considering the unity of God. In Deuteronomy 6.4 we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And of course there is the commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And Paul said, For though there be many that are called gods, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things. Thus Christians have nothing to do with the many gods and goddesses of the pagan philosophers, or as we see it in Hinduism today. It is essential that we be grounded and settled on the concept of one God before we move on to consider the nature of Christ and the Holy Spirit. But when we come to consider Christ, we find that he is called God. In John 1.1 1, 1 we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Isaiah said that God would give us a sign. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Two chapters further on we are told, told more about this amazing son. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So the virgin's son would actually be the mighty God. You couldn't get anything clearer than that, I don't think. Moreover, Paul tells us that being God, Christ is equal to God the Father. In Philippians 2.6 we read, Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Other translations express this more clearly. God's word translation says, Although he was in the form of God and equal with God, he did not take advantage of this equality. One translation makes it even more emphatic, calling Christ co-equal with God, that is, equal in all respects. Who, as he was in the likeness of God, deemed it no trespass to be the co-equal of God. That's Murdoch's translation of the New Testament. All this presents us with a big problem. Here we have two beings, the Father and the Son, who are both equally God. Yet the Bible says there's only one God. How can we resolve this problem? No worries. Jesus has resolved it for us. He said when questioned by the Jews, I and my Father are one. What did Jesus mean by this statement? It was clearly something very startling for the Jews tried to stone him. Ellen White says, It seemed that divinity flashed through humanity as Jesus said, I and my Father are one. 
the words of Christ were full of deep meaning as he put forth the claim that he and the Father were of one substance, possessing the same attributes. Now, Ellen White later said that in mind and character they are one, but her statement that they are of one substance goes way beyond that. For it is the phrase that is used in translating the Nicene Creed of, five, of 325 into English. It has thus become a very common statement of belief among Christian writers both in our day and in Ellen White's time. For example, John Knox, the Scottish Presbyterian reformer said, I offer myself without further delay to prove that Jesus Christ is of one substance with the Father. A.T. Jones in his book The Two Republics put this statement of one substance in a rather negative light, but Ellen White clearly supported it. It was important that we be established on the matter of the unity of God before Ellen White began making statements like the third person of the Godhead, indicating that there were, in fact, three persons in the one Godhead. It was also important that it be made, made clear that all our doctrines are based on the Word of God and not on Ellen White's writings. Therefore, it was not until W.W. W. Prescott and H.C. Lacey made clear biblical presentations on Jesus as the I Am and on the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Godhead at the convention at Avondale College in 19, 1896. It was not until after those presentations that Ellen White published in Desire of Ages in 1898 that the Holy Spirit was the third person of the Godhead. Now, some of you may be wondering how there can be three persons in the Godhead and yet only one God. I recently had to deal with this problem when writing my Islam book for one Muslim writer had said one plus one plus one is not equal to one. Therefore, one God plus one God plus one God is not equal to one God. To this I responded that God is infinite. So each member of the Godhead must also be infinite. Mathematically we can say infinity plus infinity plus infinity equals what? Equals infinity. That's right. <coughs> Amazing, but it is true. So that's how three gods who are each infinite can be one infinite God. If you're not mathematically inclined, you may find the following illustration helpful. Light is made up of three colours, red, green and blue. If we mix the light of these three colours in the right proportions, we see only one colour, white. This is what you're seeing on the screen at the moment. White, made by mixing three colours. We don't see the three colours, we just see one and it's white. Not a good illustration of the Godhead, but it does show how three can be one. With that in mind, I'd now like to share with you a biblical presentation showing how we can know that the Holy Spirit 
is a divine personal being distinct from the Father and the Son. We will consider first the deity of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven them. It is an amazing thing that blasphemy against the Father may be forgiven, blasphemy against the Son may be forgiven, but not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This says volumes about the deity of the Holy Spirit and also about his distinction from the Father and the Son. Now from time to time people become very troubled thinking that they may have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. My friends, let me assure you that if you are troubled by such thoughts, it's a sure sign that you have not actually gone that far. If the Holy Spirit is still convicting you of sin, you have not blasphemed him. If you are worried about it, you haven't done it. Another instance that reveals the deity of the Holy Spirit is the story of Ananias and Sapphira who tried to deceive the apostles about the price of the land they had sold to give to the church. In Acts 5 we read, But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Pretty clear, isn't it? Now we're going to look at the personality of the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit a person in the same sense that the Father and the Son are persons? Or is the Holy Spirit just a power or an influence or some part or aspect of Christ or the Father which is sent from them to convict us and to guide us? This is not a simple matter to discuss for several reasons. Firstly, the term Holy Spirit is strange to us. Secondly, Scripture does not tell us much about the Holy Spirit. In fact, it says he shall not speak of himself. And uh, there's a reason for that. One thing that I learned in studying uh, the matter of the Godhead was their humility. The Father shows his humility in letting Jesus have all the limelight. He was the one who spoke to Moses. He was the one who gave the law. He was the one who came to this earth and died to save us and he is the one who will come to redeem us. He has all the limelight. Jesus, of course, shows his humility in leaving heaven and coming to this earth and dying the way he did. The Holy Spirit shows his humility by not talking much about himself. Nevertheless, there are a number of scriptural indications that the Holy Spirit is indeed a divine personal being distinct from the Father and the Son. The most obvious verse dealing with the Father, Son and Holy Spirit is the great gospel commission. Go ye therefore and teach Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So important is this text that the devil has made sure that there has been an attack on the authenticity of this verse. 
In my book, I deal with this objection at some length. For our purposes today, it is sufficient to note that every known biblical manuscript which contained this part of Matthew and every early translation into other languages have this threefold name. Here in Matthew 28:19, the Holy Ghost is linked with the Father and the Son on equal terms. Since the Father and the Son are personal beings with individual identities, it would be strange if the Holy Spirit was not also a personal being having individuality. If this was the only scriptural statement bearing on the subject, I think it would be sufficient to settle the matter for most people. Some people object that in the book of Acts, baptism is always said to be in the name of Jesus. But what does it mean to do something in the name of Jesus? When we do something in someone's name, such as signing a letter, we are doing it on their behalf, with their authority, to promote their cause, and this of course means that we must do it in the manner specified by them. Thus, to baptise someone in Jesus' name does not necessarily mean that we invoke Jesus' name as a baptismal formula, but rather we do it in the manner specified by Jesus. And we are clearly told here that it is to be in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. You will recall that during Jesus' ministry here on earth, his disciples baptised people and there was friction with the disciples of John the Baptist because they baptised more people than John and his disciples did. It is interesting to note that Ellen White says that at this time the disciples were already using the threefold name in baptism. This is from Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 2. The prejudice of the Jews was aroused because the disciples of Jesus did not use the exact words of John in the rite of baptism. John baptised unto repentance, but the disciples of Jesus, on profession of the faith, baptised in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. The teachings of John were in perfect harmony with those of Jesus, yet his disciples became jealous for fear his influence was diminishing. A dispute arose between them and the disciples of Jesus in regard to the form of words proper to use at baptism and finally as to the right of the latter to baptise at all. Please note that this statement was made as early as 1877. Since the disciples had already been trained by Jesus to use the threefold name of the Godhead when baptising people, it would have been only natural to include it in the Gospel Commission in Matthew 28. One of the strongest arguments in favour of the personality of the Holy Spirit is the fact that the Apostle John in his Gospel goes out of his way using unnecessary words and unusual grammar to call the Holy Spirit He. In Greek, the word for spirit is pneuma, which is neuter. In agreement with this, the Holy Spirit is sometimes called it in the Bible. However, we should not suppose from this that the Holy Spirit 
is some impersonal force or influence. In Hebrew, the word for spirit is ruach, which is feminine. Should we conclude from this that the Holy Spirit is feminine? Of course not. Of course not. Neither should we make unwarranted conclusions based on the fact that in Greek the word is neuter. However, in his gospel, John goes out of his way to call the Holy Spirit he. In the King James Version, the Holy Spirit is called he, him or himself 20 times in John's gospel, chapters 14 to 16. Not all of these are specifically represented in the Greek. A number of cases the word he has been added to make sense in English. Also the word comforter is used which is masculine. But there are at least three instances where John defies the Greek grammar to call the Holy Spirit he. John 14:26. But the comforter which is the Holy Ghost, whom, that is a neuter word, whom the Father will send in my name, he, the kainos, masculine, shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. <coughs> Here a kainos is unnecessary because in Greek the pronoun is included as part of the verb. But in a kainos is masculine, disagreeing with the neuter gender of the word whom which of course is referring back to the spirit, which is neuter. It is the same in the next verse, John 15, 26, next verse 1, chapter 1. But when the comforter is come, whom, masculine referring to comforter, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the spirit of truth, which, uh, which is neuter, proceedeth from the Father, he, Econos, masculine, shall testify of me. So there we've got the masculine word, he shall testify of me, represented in the Greek. The next verse is even more emphatic. It's John 16, verse 13. How be, be it when he, Econos, masculine, the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Here the verb is come has two subjects, the spirit of truth, which is neuter, and a kainos, he, which is masculine. This is quite ungrammatical and quite unnecessary. John is really emphasising that the Holy Spirit is he. In the next example, John did not actually defy the rules of grammar, but he still called the Holy Spirit he when he did not need to. John 16, verse 14. He, Echinos, masculine, shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. Why would John go to such lengths, defying the rules of Greek grammar, to call the Holy Spirit he? The only conclusion I can come to is that he is emphasising that the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is also called another comforter. And I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter. 
that he may abide with you forever. The word translated comforter is parakletos, as many of you would know. Concerning this word, Abbot Smith says, it is someone called to one's aid in a judicial sense. Hence, an advocate, a pleader, intercessor, a friend of the accused person called to speak to his character or otherwise enlist sympathy in his favour. The word parakletos is used of Christ in 1 John 2.1. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The word advocate is parakletos. Here, of course, the idea of a judicial intercessor is very much in focus. And the additional description of such an intercessor as a friend of the accused person called to speak to his character or otherwise enlist sympathy in his favour is very comforting and reassuring when Christ does that for us. The Holy Spirit is four times called just such a comforter. And I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever even the spirit of truth. But the comforter which is the Holy Ghost whom the Father will send in my name he shall teach you all things. And then there is but when the comforter is come even the spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father he shall testify of me. And finally, if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. The fact that the Comforter is first introduced as another Comforter is very significant in this respect, as we will now see. There are two Greek words that are translated another in the New Testament. They are heteros and alos. Heteros means different. Even we sometimes say in English a different person when we mean another person. Alos means another of the same kind. When speaking of another comforter, which word do you think the Apostle John uses? Heteros or alos? He uses the word alos, another of the same kind. So Jesus since Jesus is a person, this means that the Holy Spirit must also be a person, another of the same kind. It also means that the Holy Spirit is not only our comforter, he, like Jesus, is also our advocate, as indeed we learn from Romans 8.26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Some may be confused by the fact that both Christ and the Holy Spirit intercede for us, but they intercede differently. Alan White explains this beautifully. Christ, our mediator, and the Holy Spirit are constantly interceding in man's behalf. But the Spirit pleads not for us as does Christ, 
who presents his blood shed from the foundation of the world. The Spirit works upon our hearts, drawing out prayers and penitence, praise and thanksgiving. So both are intercessors, as the Bible says, but they intercede differently. Christ pleads his blood and the Holy Spirit presents our prayers to God, as Paul says, with groanings that cannot be uttered. This fact emphasises both the personhood of the Holy Spirit and his distinctness from Jesus. Now there are other, other activities that the Holy Spirit does that only a person can do. He can be vexed, but they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit, it says. He can be lied to, but Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thy heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? He gives directions. The Holy Ghost said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. Also he makes doctrinal decisions. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, says in Acts now when they were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, he has a mind, and he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit. And with that mind he searches. The Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. He chooses. The self-same Spirit divideth to every man severally as he will and we have, may have communion with him. As Paul says, the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Finally, he can be grieved. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, we're told in Ephesians. And most importantly, he calls himself I. The Holy Spirit said unto them, um, unto them I have sent them. He calls himself I and me. The Holy Ghost said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. The evidence that we have seen today clearly reveals that the Holy Spirit is a personal being distinct from the Father and the Son. Now I promised that I would present the evidence for the authenticity of 1 John 5, 7. In 1 John 5, 7 it says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Now, if that verse is genuine, you've got the Trinity in just one statement very clearly. I didn't rely on that statement in my analysis, in my, in my book on the Trinity, because there are many who object to its authenticity, but... I believe that we can show that it is indeed authentic as I'll show you now tonight. The reason why the authenticity of this verse is doubted is that all the early Greek manuscripts of 1 John which have survived to our day omit this statement. It is also omitted in most ancient translations of this passage. However, there is some crucial evidence that indicates that it is genuine. The first such piece is a statement made in AD 251 by the Christian writer Cyprian. 
This is what he says. The Lord says, I and the Father are one, quoting Jesus' words we mentioned before. And again it is written of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Once it is admitted that Cyprian is quoting or even alluding to the disputed passage, it would be clear that the passage existed at the time of Cyprian's writing. That Cyprian is indeed making a quotation from 1 John 5, 7 can be seen from the following facts. After quoting Jesus' statement, I and my Father are one, he continues, and again, which sounds like a definite introduction to another quote. In fact, this is a common device of Cyprian. Cyprian then says, it is written. This is another definitive way of introducing scripture and Cyprian uses it at least once in each of 11 of his 12 treatises, always to introduce a scriptural quotation. So the evidence there is very, very strong. There is more. Tertullian, Cyprian's teacher, wrote around 208 AD. That was some years earlier. Thus the connection of the father in the son and of the son in the paraclete produces three coherent persons who are yet distinct one from another. These three are one essence, not one person. As it is said, I and my father are one. It was Tertullian's practice to make such short quotations or allusions to scripture. He would frequently take small snippets of scripture and weave them into his discourse as best suits his purpose. In the introduction to this part of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, we are told by the translator, it appears to me very clear that Tertullian is quoting 1 John 5, 7 in the passage now under consideration. Now, Jerome was commissioned to prepare his translation of the scriptures into Latin by Pope Damasus shortly after AD 382. This translation later became known as the Latin Vulgate. It is probable that he completed his translation of the epistles of James, Peter, John and Jude after the death of Damasus in AD 384. Around this time there appeared a prologue to these epistles in which Jerome said, in that place, particularly, where we read about the unity of the Trinity, which is placed in the first epistle of John, in which also the names of three, that is of water, blood and of spirit, do they place in their addition, and omitting the testimony of the Father and the Word and the Spirit, in which the Catholic faith is especially confirmed in the single substance the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit is confirmed. This statement is highly significant. It indicates that the text of 1 John 5, 7 was being corrupted by the intentional omission of 1 John 5, 7 when copies of the scriptures were being made. The source 
of Jerome's prologue is Codex Fulgensis, written around AD 541 and between AD 541 and 546. This Latin manuscript has been kept at the Benedictine Abbey of Fulda in Hesse-Nassau since AD 754. The text of that codex was first published by Rank in 1867, so it hasn't been known for that long. If this statement is true, if copyists were indeed omitting 1 John 5, 7 from their copies of scripture, they must have had some strong motivation for making this omission, and Tertullian shows us what it was. Tertullian made his statement, these three are one essence, not one person, in his book against Praxius. Tertullian tell us, tells us what this man Praxius taught. He says, this heresy, which supposes itself to possess the pure truth, in thinking that one cannot believe in one only God in any other way than by saying that the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost are the very self-same person. To combat this belief that the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit are the very self-same person, Tertullian responded by saying, these three are one essence, not one person. That was the right response. The copyist responded wrongly by omitting the main verse that Praxius was relying on. But there is another witness to the early existence of 1 John 5, 7. That is a man called Priscillian. He is described as a man of noble birth who enjoyed great wealth, was bold, restless, eloquent, learned and ready at debate. He was the first Christian martyr to be executed by fellow Christians. Either Priscillian or his close follower, Bishop Instantius, quoted 1 John 5, 7 around 385, saying, As John says, And there are three which give testimony on earth, the water, the flesh, the blood, and these three are in one. And there are three which give testimony in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, and these three are one in Christ Jesus. The reality and authenticity of this quotation seems certain from the fact that on the basis of this text, Priscillian has been accused of being the one who invented it, invented 1 John 5, 7. If Priscillian or his follower Instantius actually originated 1 John 5, 7 as part of their defence in Liber Apologeticus, they did so knowing that in all probability it would immediately be detected as fraudulent and thus hasten their condemnation. This hardly seems likely. Thus the evidence for the authenticity of 1 John 5, 7 is quite strong. I'm glad to have this portion of scripture restored to us. What do you think? This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, 
or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.